podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome to the Wharton Sports Business Show here on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. I'm your host, Michelle Young, with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. As usual, we have a great lineup in store for you today. Just a moment, we'll be joined on the phone by USA Today NFL columnist Lindsey Jones to talk more about the NFL anthem issue and the new safety rules being implemented this year. Then in about 15 minutes, Adam Stern of the Sports Business Journal would join us to talk about the business side of NASCAR and why it's been in the news lately. Finally, at the bottom of the hour, CEO and co-founder of SeatGeek will be on to talk about the future of mobile event ticketing. Now let's get started with Lindsay Jones of the USA Today. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Lindsay, now that the preseason has started in the NFL, can you talk about what the league had initially rolled out as their national anthem policy for the 2018 season? Yeah, so if we go back to the end of last season, um, there were only a handful of guys who were still doing some sort of demonstration, whether that was um, sitting during the national anthem, kneeling, raising a fist. Um, but the, the league owners decided that they wanted to put some sort of policy in place this offseason that, so that this year there would be kind of a unified policy around the league. So back in May, the owners um, voted. It was may or not have been an official vote, um, but voted on a new policy that would require players to stand um, if they are on the sidelines for the during the national anthem. Um, the other caveat is that is that if a player did not want to stand, he was able to stay in the locker room or inside the tunnel and rejoin his teammates once the anthem was over. Um, the big problem with that policy was that um, they did not consult the NFL Players Association or any players when they instituted that policy back in May. And so there was a lot of backlash immediately from players um, because the owners kind of tried to push this as it was a compromise. And it was a compromise between kind of factions of owners. There were some on, you know, all the way on one side, like Jerry Jones of the Cowboys, Bob McNair of the Houston Texans, who really wanted all of their players standing, you know, hands over heart um, during the anthem. And then there were other owners, whether that be um, with the New York Giants, um, San Francisco 49ers, Jed York, that wanted players to be able to kind of have the freedom to decide what they wanted to do. Um, And so this was kind of became a compromise amongst the owners, but it was certainly not a compromise with the players. What we've seen now is that there's everything is on hold and they're going now back and negotiating with the players union to try to come up with some sort of policy that maybe will appease everyone. I just think that's something that's going to be very hard to actually accomplish. Right. So a lot of developments in the last few months. So can you talk a little bit about what we've seen in terms of protests in the first few uh, preseason games? Yes, what we saw last weekend over the first kind of slate of preseason games was there was actually more demonstrations than there were at the end of last season. Um, We saw a number of players who chose to stay in the locker room or in the tunnel, kind of adhering to whatever the new new policy that they put in place in May. Um, There were several players who decided to raise their fist during the national anthem, similar to what they have done in previous years. And there were um, two players from the Miami Dolphins who decided to take a knee. One of those players, Kenny Stills, has done that since 2016. Um, and then the other player, Albert Wilson, this was um, kind of a new demonstration for him. He, he he did a demonstration with the rest of his Kansas City Chiefs teammates last year when the entire team did it back in week three when it was kind of a league-wide thing after President Trump's comments. Um, but this was a new thing for him to do kind of individually. So we have seen some form um, of protest. And I think what was um, also interesting, so one of the players who raised the fist is Malcolm Jenkins, who's the safety from the Philadelphia Eagles. And he was he began his demonstrations in 2016, stopped midway through last year after the league institu- uh, committed significant financial amounts to social justice causes. They worked with the Players Coalition, which Malcolm Jenkins was a co-founder of. Um, but after this offseason, including you know the establishment of this policy, um, Jenkins decided to restart his demonstration. Right. And we also saw a couple players take to social media to, you know, further explain what their protests were about. And Malcolm Jenkins was one of those. Can you touch on that a little bit? 
Yes, I mean, the, the messaging has been very important for the players because I think what we're now seeing uh, is some pushback from the president and others saying, well, nobody even knows why they're protesting. And the players, you know, dating back to Colin Kaepernick in 2016 when this began, have been very vocal about the issues that they care about. It's, you know, it's police brutality, it's um, systemic racial inequality, it's um, a lot of other forms of systemic racial inequality and social injustice that they've been protesting. And um, Jenkins and the Players Coalition and Kenny Stills, who is not part of the Players Coalition, but is um, has been very, very tied to Colin Kaepernick, they have been very vocal about the things that they care about, um, whether it is um, youth incarceration rates. What we saw from the Players Coalition a couple weeks ago was that during training camp, they were wearing T-shirts that said hashtag schools, not prisons, and had statistics about the number of um, children, you know, youth that are incarcerated in this country, specifically highlighting the number of um, youth of color, you know, African-American children who have been in jail. So, you know, they have been very, uh, very active in talking about what their issues are because they believe that their message um, has really been tied up too much with the national anthem and not so much what they're actually wanting to change. Right. And taking it back to the owners, because as you said in the beginning, you know, there are varying viewpoints on this and tying that into Kenny Stills with the Dolphins. Can you talk about the Dolphins ownership and what they had initially said about the protest rule and where they are on that now? Yeah. So why did the league and the NFLPA really decided to kind of put uh, this policy on hold was after right before training camp. And it was it was reported by the Associated Press that the Dolphins had a line in their player handbook this year that players could be potentially fined or suspended for violating the national anthem rule. That was something in, in addition to what the league, the league policy had said. Um, the league was going said that teams could be punished if players um, did not uh, abide by the new rule. And they, but they also gave the teams the ability to punish players individually on top of that. And Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, came right out, you know, or a day later, about 24 hours later, and said that was merely a placeholder, and they were still trying to figure out exactly what their policy would be. But there was significant backlash after that. And, you know, I think the Dolphins, it was an interesting situation because um, Stephen Ross has been one of the more progressive owners. He's put a lot of money um, and time into social justice causes. They registered all their players to vote a couple years ago. I mean, that was a pretty unique situation in pro sports. Um, and he he founded Rise, which is a... Um, social justice initiative for um, athletes, not just in the NFL, but across, you know, college and professional sports. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting, interesting situation to see that the Dolphins had done that. I don't think that they were alone in doing that. They were just the first who had this policy um, that was reported publicly. So there was a lot of backlash from that. But so far, we have not seen, um, you know, any repercussions for what Kenny Stills and Albert Wilson did last week. You know, he says that he has the support of his coaches. Um, but the the bottom line is that this this is far from over, and I just I don't think no matter that they are negotiating right now the league and the players, and they're trying to get a lot more player input and trying to come up with a policy. But I don't think that there's going to be any one thing that is going to you know have one side win this or have this be over because the players still very, a lot of these players still very passionately care about these issues and want to keep highlighting them. Um, and the president com- continues to use this as an issue to um, that will appeal to his base. Sure. So I just I don't think that no matter what policy they come up with, I have a hard time seeing everybody come to agreement and that it just go away quietly. Right. And we're less than a month away from the, you know, first game, and it doesn't look like there's going to be a resolution that we can see right now or. See what happens there. But let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the NFL's new safety rules and what those are. Yeah, so the biggest change this year is that they've made a rule that is prohibiting players from using their helmet to initiate contact. And they've been trying over the course of, I mean, shoot, at least the last 10 years to really take the head out of the game and there have been targeting rules where, you know, you couldn't use the crown of your helmet to lower your helmet to make contact. They've done a, put in a lot of protections on defenseless players, especially defenseless receivers. Um, but this was a significant, significant change this year because it was basically outlawing any use of the helmet for initiating contact. And that includes for offensive players, for like a running back who would, you know, potentially lower his head to fight for extra yardage against a linebacker, 
for offensive linemen who might be, you know, pulling ahead of a play. So there have been a lot of questions about how this rule is going to be applied. And what we've seen over the first week of games, really, is that um, we've seen a couple textbook cases. You know, there was a player who was ejected from the, by the an Indianapolis Colts player who was ejected, where it was a very classic. He lowered his helmet. He, do- he dove at a receiver um, helmet to helmet. He was ejected. That was the first player who's been ejected because of this rule, which is also the, a, another new thing this year is that players can be ejected because of this. Um, but then we've seen a lot of others that are very questionable that you wonder how are they going to play the game and how is this going to be officiated if these are, if these type of tackles are being called. Um, so I think the thing that we're seeing is that they're going to maybe over call it in the preseason. Um, the, the officials and the referees are going to err on the side of let's throw the flag. And then at the end of August, we'll have, you know, a couple hundred potential of these penalties that we can look through and decide, okay, this actually is a penalty and this isn't. Um, but this is a storyline that is going to be ongoing this year as um, coaches are trying to figure out how to coach it players are going to have to learn what is and what isn't a foul and the the officials especially are going to have to learn exactly how they're going to call it in real time right so what has the reaction been by the players the fans you know or the teams and coaches after these first yeah, three preseason I, games so i think you know after the first week there was a lot of just it's just they've been trying to feel out exactly how it's going to go. And there have been some coaches, I think, who have been disappointed that maybe it has been called more than they were anticipating it was going to be. Um, you know, players are just really trying to figure out exactly what it's going to look like in practice. And, you know, they can they can be told, they can watch as many videos as, they, as the NFL offers, and they do come, the official officiating crews come to each training camp and um, meet with the team, show them lots of videos about what is and what is acceptable, what now is a penalty. Um, but until you're actually doing it and you see what they're going to call, they don't really know. So, you know, I think there have been a couple instances where teams have been very dismayed about penalties that have been called. There was a pretty questionable one in a game um, that was called on the Arizona Cardinals last weekend that was uh, – it, it was very borderline. And, you know, it didn't look like the guy actually made contact with his helmet at all. He didn't lead with his helmet, but it was flagged because there was maybe some incidental conduct. So, or in, incidental contact, excuse me. So – you know, I think there's just been a, there's been some frustration, but also I think there's the understanding that this rule is in place now and it's not going to be taken off the book. So they're going to have to figure out ways to tweak it and really just change the way that they play to make it work. And, you know, of course, concussions have been in the news with the NFL. So can you just talk a little bit further about why the NFL feels they need to do this um, and make this new rule for the season? Yeah, I mean, it's... It, they're, they've been in a, under a lot of fire because of the way that they've handled um, head injuries and concussions, um, not just recently, but for many years. I mean, there was obviously major lawsuits that they, they lost um, several years ago. But, you know, they're having to make significant changes um, for the safety of the game as a way to make the game survive and keep um, the next generation of players coming into the league because there's so much more awareness about head injuries and the long-term damage that can come from from football and other in, and other sports that um, have head contact, um, whether that's you know soccer or lacrosse or boxing or any of these things, but um, yeah, the NFL is putting in a lot of rules about that are changing the way that the game is played, and it's really hard to argue with any of those. I mean, I think there's some very old school football people who say, "Oh, you're making it too soft," and you know, the this isn't the, the game that I grew up watching or playing. But I think everybody has to acknowledge that the game has to be safer, um, both for the current players and for the generations to come. And so how, just want to combine these two topics here, how do you think the anthem policy, uh, these protests, will end realistically? And do you believe the refs will continue to really push the safety rules here? Um, so with the, with the safety rules, they, they don't, they have to enforce them. Um, you know, I think they're going to continue tweaking the language, the way that they're explained, um, you know, I hope that by the regular the time the regular season starts and certainly by the time we get to next year or, you know, late next season when the games are really, really critical, that there'll be a little bit more clarity about what is and what is not a foul and they'll be more used to calling it in real time. But that rule's not going away. So I think we probably just need to get used to it. And this year might be a little bit of a feeling out process of, you know, as everybody from you know the players, the officials, coaches, 
to the fans, those of us watching at home, um, get used to it. Um, and as far as the anthem protests, I don't necessarily see it going away. Um, I think the league is going to try to come to some sort of agreement with the players, something that can try to appease as many people as possible, but I don't think they're going to satisfy everyone. Um, and I thought it was pretty notable that Kenny Stills, a receiver from um, the Miami Dolphins last week, he said that he plans to continue his protests on into the regular season. Um, he's going to keep doing all of the off-field work that he has been doing as well. But he said that about what it would take, or at least the first step, to making him consider ending his protest would be to get Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, the two players who really started this movement two years ago, back into the league, that, that that's what it would take for him to stop. And at this point, that seems, especially for Colin Kaepernick, seems to be very, very far off, especially as they move much closer to having some sort of resolution to his collusion case. Right. And Lindsay, before we let you go, can you just talk about any other storylines that you are following uh, before the season and as the season approaches? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the things that we talked about are two of the big, um, you know, kind of off the field or away from um, the, the, the officiating is on the field. But um, I think there's a lot of really on the field storylines that are going to be interesting. And I'm really interested in watching the young quarterbacks. This was a really interesting draft in terms of the rookie quarterbacks that came out from, you know, Baker, Baker Mayfield to Sam Darnold and Josh Allen and Josh Rosen. Um, and certainly Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. And, you know, this is the next generation. We've had some very exciting young quarterbacks recently with Carson Wentz and Jared Goff and with Tom Brady and Drew Brees kind of in the very end of their, you know, the last couple years of their career. I'm really interested to see how these new guys are going to do as they kind of are poised now to become the new face of the NFL. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. That was Lindsay Jones of USA Today, and this is the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM Channel 132. I would now like to welcome Adam Stern of the Sports Business Journal. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you talk a little bit about where NASCAR was 10 to 15 years ago compared to where it is today? Yeah, I think uh, 10, 15 years ago was probably when the sport was peaking from an attendance and ratings perspective. Um, you know, you never say never, right? So, I mean, the sport can can maybe somehow get back to those heights, uh, depending on how the future shakes out. But, yeah, I mean, certainly in the early 2000s was when the sport was uh, seeing kind of its, its biggest growth. Uh, it was really kind of transitioning from a sport that had mostly a southern-based uh, uh, fan base to, to one that had increasingly a national fan base. Uh, obviously had a, you know, at that, in those days, it was kind of, uh, you know, right around the time when Dale Earnhardt Jr. was becoming a star. His father passed away in 2001. He was obviously kind of NASCAR's most popular driver until he passed away, and then he passed that mantle on to his son. Uh, there were several other stars who kind of caught the nation's attention around those times. So there was just a, a confluence of factors that the economy had not crashed. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the kind of, uh, you know, epics of, of NASCAR and the, and the different, you know, eras, uh, the, when the economy crashed around 2008 was kind of a, a big uh, kind of segmentation. Um, the sport's kind of been trying to recover ever since. And, and so, yeah, again, you look back to, to those days, and, and it was certainly the kind of the headier days of NASCAR. So you mentioned 2008, so we're 10 years from that now. So can you talk a little bit about what are some things that have been done that have benefited NASCAR, and then what are things that have been done or happened that have had a negative effect on NASCAR since then? And certainly the, the biggest negative is, is just what happened, I think, to an extent with the economy and, um, you know, kind of after that point, uh, you know, NASA, obviously the economy has come roaring back in many ways. So it's tough to, you know, solely blame the economy on all of NASCAR's ails. But, uh, you know, it certainly doesn't appear much to be much of a coincidence that their troubles really started around the time that the economy cratered. Uh, their fan base is, is very blue collar. Um, you know, it, obviously other things have happened across society, like, it's cheaper to buy HDTVs now, and, and, you know, it's still pretty expensive to go spend a weekend at a, you know, traveling to a race and staying there for the whole weekend and whatnot. So I think, obviously, that's been one of the, the biggest things that, that has affected is just uh, the, the crashing of the economy in 2008 and never fully recovering um, from that. Uh, you know, I think people's disposable income is, is gone back up, but just for one reason or another, they haven't been spending as much on NASCAR as they used to. Um, you know, there, there's other things that are that are debated about whether they're positive or negative. NASCAR introduced a playoff system in 2004, and then they altered it significantly, I believe, in 2014. Um, and, and that was all in a move to kind of try and Americanize playoff the sport. You know, motorsports traditionally is just 
whoever has the most points at the end of the season uh, ends up winning the championship. And NASCAR wanted to kind of make their sport kind of a little bit more like stick and ball sports in the U.S. and have a playoffs. So that's something that has a lot of people debated. You know, it's tough to tell whether it's a positive or a negative. Some people to this day will, will argue either way. Um, and, you know, there, there's other things that they've tried to do to try and modernize the sport. Uh, you know, I think obviously they've, they've gotten a lot of uh, – they've got a great media deal um, that sees them on Fox and NBC, NBC Sports through uh, 2024 to get $820 million annually from that. So it was very lucrative for the sport. So they've been able to get a, a great TV deal for themselves. So that's certainly a positive. So I think there's a lot of different things. And, unfortunately, if you, if you go throughout the sport, you're going to get different opinions on whether they've solely been a positive, solely been a negative. And I think, you know, the playoffs is probably one of the biggest examples of that. Some people to this day will still argue that it's something that's helped the sport, even though the ratings have gone down for what they would say would be other reasons. And then there's some people who will tell you, you know, that is the reason that, that things have gone down. So it's tough to know which exactly is right. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But definitely, you know, the sport has tried to, to modernize and, and kind of make itself more what it feels like is attractive to modern-day consumers. And, and there's a deep debate at times on some of those decisions about whether it's good to do that or whether you're turning off too many of the purists and, and whether that's really hurt NASCAR over the years. Sure. So speaking of purists, um, let's talk a little bit about the current business and leadership structure of NASCAR. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they got, uh, you know, they, they, it's a it's a privately owned business. Uh, it's been owned by the France family since I think it was founded in 1948. So obviously it's a little bit different than a, a lot of other stick and ball leagues. Uh, you know, obviously like for example, the NFL or NBA is owned by all the owners. They, they all own a collective, you know, slice of the pie and they literally own the league. Whereas in NASCAR, uh, you know, the, the sanctioning body is owned by a family and one family only. Um, and then it's also a little bit different in the sense that, you know, in the NFL or NBA, et cetera, the, the league, kind of to an extent owns the teams um, and, and they're all kind of one and, and then the teams own the venues in NASCAR it's a lot different um, you know the France family which owns NASCAR they, they own the sanctioning body which is kind of the governing body but they don't necessarily own it they definitely don't own any of the teams they do own some of the tracks but it's somewhat of a, a separate company it's a publicly traded company that is under International Speedway Corp is the name so it's definitely a unique structure in NASCAR that, that is a good bit different than what you see in stick and ball leagues. And that's what's also somewhat led to some of the issues over the years. It's very complicated to try and uh, navigate the space for, for people like sponsors, even media partners at times, things like that. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's a somewhat Darwinism. It's just the way motorsports has always been. It's not set up exactly like football, basketball, hockey, baseball, but uh, it's definitely a bit of a unique structure and, and it's something that has led to some of the challenges uh, over the years. You talked about the deal with Fox, and we've been talking a lot on this show, and we've seen in the news a lot about ratings, um, especially for the NFL. So how are ratings for NASCAR right now? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, know, you can get kind of two different answers on this. If you look at how NASCAR is doing versus itself, uh, you know, from its peak, it's down significantly. Uh, you know, we, we started off talking about kind of that 2005 to 2007 time before things kind of started to turn down a little bit in 2008, 2009. You know, from those days, they're down maybe 40, 50 percent peak ratings. However, in those days, their ratings were so high that they were com that they were pretty much only coming after the NFL and college football in terms of ratings. So. While they've seen, you know, some some pretty substantial declines, their ratings from their peak were so high that they're still getting some pretty good numbers. Um, you know, they still average several million people watching their main race a, race a week. I think that over the first half of the season, the the average was around 3.6 million people for for their top series races. So that still compares pretty favorably to all of sports and entertainment. It certainly is starting to lag further and further behind. You know, the number one, which is, is still the NFL. But, um, you know, if you, if you compare it to all in sports and entertainment, they're still doing okay. Uh, if you compare it versus themselves, obviously they're nowhere where they want to be because they're, you know, about 40 or 50% off of the peak. Sure. Let's get back to the family-owned structure of NASCAR. Can you talk a little bit to our audience about who Brian France is and what running NASCAR entails? Absolutely. Brian is uh, the grandson of the founder of NASCAR. So, uh, Bill France Sr. founded NASCAR in 1948, and he ran it for a good bit. And then his son, Bill France Jr., took over. And his son is seen as someone who really kind of helped 
vault the sport into that next realm that started to happen in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then Brian took over, I believe, in 2004, around the time his father started to have some failing health. Um, you know, Brian's been someone, obviously, who's been around the sport his whole life, just because, obviously, his family, you know, runs and, and founded NASCAR. Uh, he started off, I believe, as a, as a you know, marketing executive at NASCAR, and he slowly worked his way up and eventually became the, uh, the chairman and CEO. Um, and his sister, uh, his sister is the CEO of uh, the, the track corporation that I referenced earlier, International Speedway Corp. So it's definitely still a family business. Um, you know, as far as what he does, uh, as, the, you know, as the chairman, he was kind of the person overseeing the board meetings. Um, you know, a NASCAR board meeting is where they're probably discussing some of the most important topics in the sport and either green lighting or red lighting and vetoing, you know, likely, you know, the most important decisions that happen in NASCAR. Um, and then as the CEO, he obviously was also kind of helping on a day-to-day basis, helping, you know, um, you know, just various decisions being made every day uh, and helping run the, the sport. So NASCAR, as far as itself, the sanctioning body, they're kind of the governing body, but they also help, obviously, market the sport. They're very important from that regard. They do can also control the media rights. So, you know, it's not like the, the, the teams, for example, are not going to be going to negotiate with Fox and NBC. It's, it's NASCAR, the sanctioning body. So he helped oversee that. So they have, they, you know, they, they don't run everything because, obviously, the teams do some important stuff. Tracks do important things. and media partners, Fox and NBC, do important things. But the, the sanctioning by itself definitely has a couple of very key roles. Obviously, they, they enforce competition as well, of course. So definitely it's a, it's a very important role that, that Brian did hold uh, before he was forced to step down last week. Sure. So if, so if everything seems to be going so well, can you talk a little bit about why people are calling for a change in the sport? Yeah, I mean, look, their numbers are 40% off their peak from 2005 or 2008, so I wouldn't say everything's going so well. I, I don't know if I implied that necessarily, but, um, you know, obviously the, the sports, it, you just got to look at it from a totality perspective, right? I mean, it's not always everything's great. It's not always that everything's awful. So they're, they're kind of in the middle. Um, you know, as far as why things need to potentially change, it's because of the fact that they've been on that decline for, for about a decade now. Um, you know, if you look at a public, uh, you know, publicly traded company, you know, it'd be very rare, most likely more times than not for a company to have 10 years worth of, you know, key, key performance indicator declines and continue to keep the same people in charge. Usually, unfortunately, for, for those people, if, you, if you're overseeing a company that's, that's on the decline, eventually you're going to lose your job. So, that's why there's been lots of calls for change. Um, again, the sport at its height was doing so well that it pretty much was just below the NFL in popularity in college football. So that's why, you know, just because they're seeing some decline from that, that doesn't mean necessarily the sky is falling. They're still averaging millions of people a week watching their races. But, yeah, I mean, they used to have twice as much. So there's no question that I don't think everything's going great. They, they have a lot of challenges. But it's also not to suggest that the sky is falling necessarily. Who is going to take uh, over the role of Brian France, and how important is that next person? It's a great question. Uh, in the interim, it's his, it's his uncle. Um, so his uncle, uh, Jim France, has uh, been in the business uh, as well his whole life. Uh, he's, he's a long-term motorsports guy. So Brian's in his mid-50s. Jim France is in his early 70s. So he's a, a good bit older. He's a generation older than Brian. Um, you know, he's again, he's someone who's been in motorsports his whole life, so he's, he's very respected. He's not seen as, as someone who is as likely to do something wild and crazy as unfortunately what happened to, to Brian last week when he got arrested in the Hamptons. And as far as who can replace him long term, that's a great question. Um, you know, most likely they'll probably promote from within. As we were as we were touching on earlier, because NASCAR is so different in some of the stick and ball sports, it's very complex and complicated. So it's, it would be very tough to just handpick even a very skilled executive from the NFL or NBA and have them come in and instantly become CEO. So from that regard, they're likely to probably from, promote from within. Uh, they have a COO named Steve Phelps, who actually was a longtime NFL executive, but he's now been there for 13 years. He's seen, from what we're hearing, as most likely to eventually be named permanent CEO, but it's possible that move might not come until next season. They've got about three months or so left maybe a little bit longer of their regular season. And it's very likely that the interim chairman CEO, Jim France, will continue in that role through the end of the year. Okay. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the future of motorsports as a whole and what trends you're seeing as you cover it? It's a fascinating time in motorsports because 
uh, you know, there's this whole notion out there, and, and whether it's right or wrong, you know, people have to decide on their own. But there's definitely a notion out there that, you know, kids don't like cars anymore. Um, people aren't as driving as much. It's kind of the whole notion that, you know, everyone's living in cities and using Ubers, and therefore no one works on our cars. It, again, I don't, you know, it's, it's for people to decide on their own if they fully agree or disagree with that, or if they're somewhere in the middle. But there's definitely that thought process out there that's been shared. And so, you know, motorsports is in an interesting place right now. We're obviously seeing the electri- electrification of cars. Um, you know, a lot of cars, companies are starting to invest heavily in electric technology, and they're starting to race some of those cars as well. There's now a series called Formula E, which obviously stands for electric, that is growing in global popularity, growing in interest to manufacturer car companies. Um, and so that's kind of a great example of how, you know, motorsports is actually kind of adjusting and growing with the times. So it, it's a fascinating time because you got some people who are saying, you know, the gas engine, the diesel engine is kind of dying off and, you know, no one works on their cars anymore because cars are too complex to work on it on your own anymore as opposed to 10, 20, 30 years ago. So there, there's some people who, who kind of give dire predictions about the future of motorsports. Um, and then other people feel like it's going to be able to properly adjust and that, you know, people will always have that need for speed. Uh, that's kind of a natural instinct. So. You know, you kind of have people on both sides as far as people who are optimists or pessimists. You know, I probably tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I definitely don't think motorsports is going away. But, again, it definitely has some very legitimate challenges. There's no question. I mean, it's not like everything is going great. Um, But just because not everything is going great doesn't necessarily mean everything is going awful. So, again, I think, you know, they definitely have some legitimate challenges in terms of motorsports, trying to keep people interested in cars, trying to continue to bring people out to events because you don't want to hold events in, in, with empty grandstands. So, uh, you know, motorsports is kind of at this weird inflection point right now where technology and all these developments are kind of bringing about a lot of change, both from a consumption standpoint and even from a competition standpoint with the cars themselves. So it's an interesting time. I think motorsports will be here for years to come. Uh, I think NASCAR, IndyCar, these top series are going to be here for years to come. But are they going to be, like, you know, really large national interest sports? Or are they going to, unfortunately for themselves, maybe have a little bit more of a small niche following? That's what I think is the key question that we'll have to follow over the next several years. Right. And I know we will continue to follow that on this show. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. That was Adam Stern. That was Adam Stern of the Sports Business Journal. We will be right back after this break. You're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM Channel 132. You're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to the Wharton Sports Business Show here on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. I am your host, Michelle Young, with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. We just wrapped up two great conversations, one with Lindsay Jones of USA Today and one with Adam Stern of the Sports Business Journal talking about the NFL and NASCAR. We're going to shift gears here as we are happy to have Jack Gretzinger, CEO and co-founder of SeatGeek, on the line. Jack, welcome to the program. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we jump into what SeatGeek is for all of those who might not know about it, can you talk a little bit about your background before SeatGeek? Yeah, so I um, grew up um, in uh, Ohio and and. Uh, of a programmer at the heart, so I was building websites throughout my whole childhood, um, and uh, then went to school uh, at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, and met a guy named Russ, who you know eventually became my, uh, my one of my co-founders of SeatGeek, um, and you know both of us got consulting jobs right out of school, but we're sort of constantly talking about um, doing a, a company together. We'd actually done one before earlier, um, so uh, quit our consulting jobs seven months in and uh, sat down and. Uh, and uh, launched SeatGeek. And so when you started SeatGeek, um, you know, officially in 2009, why did you choose to do it? What did you see in the space that made you want to start the um, SeatGeek? Yeah, so, you know, we were living in Boston at the time. And Boston, for those Boston sports fans who remember back in 2009, everyone was winning everything. Um, I think three of the four teams won their leagues. So we, for fun, it started to just kind of, you know, sell some tickets online, Craigslist, eBay, et cetera. Um, we were both huge sports fans, went to a ton of concerts. So we sort of just, you know, became became familiar with the market as very amateur ticket sellers. Um, but also we're just kind of blown away by how user antagonistic we thought 
that um, the experience of buying tickets online was and the experience of discovering stuff to go to and you know coordinating with friends. So figure that um, there's got to be a better, easier way to really deliver live entertainment, you know, sports, music, theater to people um, and to add some transparency, you know, in the process. So that was sort of kind of like the founding vision behind, uh, behind SeatGeek. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what SeatGeek is? How yeah, is? so it, ultimately it's um, the ultimate ticket app in your pocket that's going to, A, help you discover, you know, it's going to learn about what you like to do. It's going to help you discover stuff around you that you didn't know about. And then once you've decided that you want to go buy something, um, we're going to deliver to you the most inventory on the internet all in one place for the best prices, help you easily find the best deals. Um, once you've bought a ticket, you know, in a few taps, we'll zap that ticket to your phone. You can share it with friends. You can um, you can get into the event just using the app. So it's sort of this ecosystem all centered around making it just incredibly dead simple to to go to a show or go to a game or go to a concert. And that makes sense being that it's 2018, but when you started the uh, company in 2009, what did the ticket landscape look like then? Yeah, so that was, it was pre-mobile. And, you know, if I were to kind of simplify the, the evolution of things, the, the advent of mobile and us, you know, being fortunate to be early adopters of it was really kind of what spurred us to, um, to some early traction. And the interesting thing about mobile is, you know, mobile in the, in the tech world is kind of a very buzzwordy thing that people has been talked about forever. Um, in some categories where people are buying things, mobile just means that, you know, what you previously could buy on your computer, you can now buy on your phone, but ultimately it doesn't really change what you can buy or how you can buy it, where, where you can buy it. It's really interesting for live events because it actually just enables all sorts of experiences that um, that you couldn't have before. So whereas pre- previously, if you know, when using a laptop, you needed to get a ticket shipped in the mail to you, um, that means it has to be something um, that you plan, you know, a week, two weeks, two months in advance. Whereas in sort of a mobile world, you can just zap a ticket to someone's phone instantly. Um, given that, you can make a buying decision when you're at a bar with some friends, and five minutes later, you know, you're sitting uh, sitting in the bleachers. Um, and it, it's that kind of um, sort of incremental experiences that just didn't really exist before that we've really uh, been able to enable. So what was it like getting something like SeatGeek off the ground, and what did it require? Uh, so, you know, early on, we were super scrappy, um, intentionally didn't raise much money, just focused laser hard on building the best product we possibly could and, and figured, you know, we're going to live or die by what we build. Um, been around for nine years, so the company's you know, sort of grown steadily throughout that. We ended up um, raising some more money and have some great investors behind us. Um, and then later on, we also launched um, Enterprise Business we call SeatGeek Open, um, which now works with some of the biggest venues in the world um, to power their ticketing and to distribute tickets openly across the whole internet. Um, so we've sort of that, the product we started with, the consumer product, and we also have SeatGeek Open that we run as well. That's amazing. How many people did you have when you started and where are you at with numbers today? We started, we were, uh, there was just three of us all in a very crappy office in New York uh, programming uh, 24-7. Um, and today we're a little over 400 folks. That's great. And where are you today from a business standpoint? So, um, you know, the Seeky consumer experience is uh, focused on the U.S. and Canada. And we have, you know, many millions of folks who use Seeky to discover events and buy events. Um, and then on the enterprise side, we, we ticket some of the largest venues in the world, including AT&T Stadium with Dallas Cowboys. Um, Manchester City in the UK, um, and um, you know lots of other teams and venues as well. So, what is the advantage for someone that might be a little bit, say, more familiar with a competing ticket uh, company to using SeatGeek? Yeah, so um, I guess you're speaking about on the uh, SeatGeek Open Enterprise side of things. Yes. Yeah, so we have kind of a fundamentally different model, um, and it's one totally focused around openness. Um, and the kind of legacy model in our industry has been uh, one of close exclusivity, where you know a venue would kind of contract with a legacy ticketing company and then only sell tickets on that that company's site, which is pretty strange when you think about you know, the, the broader context of e-commerce and how people usually sell things online. Um, you know, that would be like if Hilton decided that they were going to allow only Expedia to sell all of their inventory and not use any other travel site, which, of course, is sort of silly, right? It would mean that 
um, you know, Hilton would get less distribution and, and sell fewer rooms. It would also mean that, that the user experience was probably worse because, in my example, you know, Expedia wouldn't have any incentive to really create a better user experience. It would have a monopoly on that distribution point. And that's what's existed historically. We enable uh, our clients, um, like the Cowboys and the New Orleans Saints, New Orleans Pelicans, um, to sell not only on SeatGeek, but to sell across the whole internet, you know, on their terms at the sites they want to, and ultimately to reach more fans and deliver better experiences experiences to fans. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. You mentioned the Cowboys and you mentioned the Saints. However, you did not mention any of the NF, other NFL teams. So what is that partnership like uh, between the NFL and different ticket entities and then yourselves and those teams? Yeah, so the NFL has uh, launched something that is really interesting. Um, this is the first season uh, it's live, and we're thrilled to be partners with the NFL working on it. And, and the, the basic idea here is that that openness that I've been talking about um, is something that um, with certain uh, specific partners that the NFL is rolling out league-wide. Um, so, for example, um, you will when you, when you buy a, a ticket on SeatGeek this year for any NFL team, it will be what we would call be reissued through the primary ticketing platform of that team, whether that's SeatGeek or, or another company, so that the buyer of the ticket knows that he or she is getting a fully valid ticket that they can have total confidence um, they can have total confidence in and it is delivered instantly. Um, and then this, also as part of that, teams are able to sell across um, the sites of these select partners um, when they're, they're selling their primary inventory as well. Very interesting. And I know you do a lot of work with the MLS. So what have you been doing with the various teams um, in Major League Soccer? Yeah, we're thrilled to have MLS as partners. Um, they're an incredibly innovative league. Um, we're um, the league-wide ticketing partner, and then we also work with uh, many of the specific um, MLS teams, including um, you know, Sporting Kansas City and Seattle Sounders and Los Angeles FC and, and many others. Um, and, and, you know, Along with uh, working closely with the MLS, we sort of um, conceived of the value of open ticketing and worked with them to create the first template for it when we launched with Sporting Kansas City uh, two years ago. Um, so they've really, you know, credit to them for being on the bleeding edge of this and, and doing it for all the right reasons. I mean, it's ultimately just to deliver um, better experiences, a better time to MLS fans so they, get, they come back, you know, again and again. Sure. And have you seen with the MLS fans that they, you know, perhaps are more open to using a platform like this? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to brag, but we've seen pretty incredible adoption. And we also um, very rigorously survey fans of the teams that we work with and found that they're much, much happier using SeatGeek than they were uh, via sort of the the incumbent company, Um, which is ultimately, you know, our, our Two big things that we're focused on are, are making fans happy and helping teams grow their businesses. Um, and we're really big believers that the open model um, is the best way to do that because fundamentally it aligns the interests of the ticketing platform with the team itself. And so what exactly does Geek do for the team? Say, for example, the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, so we... We'll sort of um, we act as the primary ticketing platform, so that means you know issuing um, all of the tickets that the uh, team is selling, but then providing the technical rails, so you know, the APIs for the team to sell on SeatGeek, but also on any other site. Um, and you know, primary ticketing software is complex. There's lots of other functionality that of um, a box office or a you know season ticket sales group might use, um, which we deliver. Uh, but fundamentally, you can think about it sort of as the operating system for a venue that uh, allows them to run their business. So sticking with the Pelicans, for example, you know, their season's about to start again in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So talk us through the process. You know, what happens before the season when they're about to start ticketing up to when the fan has a ticket, you know, on their mobile device and getting into the door? Is there data captured? Um, just everything that goes into that. Yeah, that's a great question. It depends a bit on the specific situation. So, you know, every pro sports team uh, sells a good fraction of their tickets via season tickets. So at the beginning of the season, we're working on getting season tickets to every season ticket holder. Um, those season ticket holders could can then, um, you know, often transfer tickets to friends. So perhaps, you know, 
you have uh, 41 tickets for the Pelicans and you're going to go to 30, but then you're going to send five to one friend and six to another. Um, you might decide to resell some of those if there's some games you can't make. And then we'll also, of course, work uh, with the team to power the, the single game sales. So allowing them to set prices across all of the games that are scheduled. Um, and to your point, understand from a data perspective who they're selling to. Um, current uh, teams in, in the legacy, legacy paradigm know the identity of a surprisingly small number of people who are attending their events, usually less than half, which is a real problem, you know, on multiple dimensions. It's a problem from a security standpoint. It's a problem from a customer relationship standpoint. So by, by opening things up and allowing all information to sort of flow through this open system, we can pass that back to the team so they actually know who is in their venue um, and can use that intelligently. Right. Jack, I just want to pause real quick and remind the audience that we are speaking with Jack Gretzinger, CEO and co-founder of SeatGeek, and this is the Warden Sports Business Show. Jack, you uh, SeatGeek did something very innovative and is working with Snapchat, um, selling tickets, I believe, through that platform. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, what you've done, and where you see that going in the future? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So, you know, talking a bit about value of open distribution, and um, that isn't just selling tickets to folks in places that they're used to buying. It's also in, in new places. So we're stoked to work with Snapchat. You know, the basic idea here is if you're going to, uh, we started with LAFC, uh, so if you're going to an LAFC game and you're near um, the venue and using Snapchat, we offer folks the ability to buy right within the app, and Snapchat makes it incredibly simple to have a, a ticket um, bought in you taps, you swipes, you get delivered to your phone, and then you can get in. Um, so, you know, ultimately, that's the first of um, many of these sorts of more um, somewhat outside the box ways of distributing um, that we're uh, really looking forward to work on. And and how is that going? When did that when did that program start? Snapchat that we first launched about two months ago at this point. I have to look at the exact date. I think it was in June. And do you think that? Uh, any of the NFL teams that you work with would be so forward-thinking to do that? Um, so ultimately, you know, with the NFL, thanks to the new system, that's defined by uh, the league itself and who it sort of identifies as partners. So you know, ultimately, I think that's um, it's an NFL league decision, and I'd have to defer to them um, uh, based on uh, who, who joins as official participants. Sure. Um, so recently, uh the decision was made to acquire TopTix, which is a ticketing software company. What does that open up for SeatGeek? Yeah, so when we got into this two years ago, um, like many startups, we faced uh, what's what's called a buy versus build decision, where we were trying to decide if we wanted to to build our own primary ticket platform or uh, acquire uh, one that existed out there. And pretty early on, became really just enamored with what uh, TopTix built. TopTix is a company that. It's based in Israel, but has had offices throughout Europe and the U.S. Um, just fell in love with their software. Thought that you know, honestly, we'd really <laughs> be lucky to, to build something that good ourselves. So, um, uh, after um, working closer with them, they we fully joined forces early last year, 2017, um, and um, their team has you know stayed on and uh, become very much part of SeatGeek. But you know, ultimately, that enables us to just uh, deliver really by far the most modern. Um, API-driven uh, ticket platform to some of the biggest teams on earth, um, and to do that within the Seeky consumer experience, which we, you know, humbly think is, is the best thing out there. How does a company like SeatGeek stay ahead of the curve to, you know, keep up with the data and technology, and you know, stay in front of the competition in a space like this? Yeah, we think of ourselves as as really, you know, a technology company that has chosen to work on live entertainment and pour, you know, uh, mind share into that. But but fundamentally, we're we're a technology company first. And I think that's kind of an important, even though it may seem like a small distinction, an important mindset because you find that a lot of companies in sports and entertainment think of themselves really as sports and entertainment companies, hire that way, and then use technology because you know, oh, of course you have to. But they're, they're, they don't start with technology, whereas we do. Um, so, you know, there's many people who work here who are obsessed with, um, live entertainment and go to, you know, 60 plus events a year, but there's also folks who, who don't, uh, it's, you know, not necessarily a major part of their life and that's totally fine. We 
they still enjoy building, you know, incredible uh, software and having it used by millions of folks. You have a very impressive list of investors, um, some companies and then some individuals, including sports icons. Do you ever work with them? Um, you know, we have. We certainly will kind of get informal advice from them. Um, you know, there's sort of so many, uh, so much value wrapped up in different people's personal brands these days. So we want to be very sensitive to not abuse that for our own um, for our own gain. So um, we're honored to have a lot of the people. Uh, that we have involved, and we'll get uh, we'll get kind of informal advice from any of those folks. But I uh, haven't done too much that's been formally structured in terms of marketing and uh, endorsement and that sort of thing. Sure. You also recently um, came into a naming rights deal in Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm excited about that. So we're uh, we're working with the Chicago Fire to um, to power their venue, and and also as you mentioned, um, we. Uh, acquired the naming rights for the stadium, so um, it'll be called uh, SeaGeek Stadium. Um, and that, you know, first time for us, so um, we went into it knowing that uh, we probably had some learning to do as we went along, but um, uh, we're excited. You know, it's, it's fun, obviously, for everyone on the team, and we also think it should really help raise awareness in that in that market. Yeah, huge market, so I would imagine that would be very positive for you guys. Um, one more question for you, Jack. Can you talk about what you're excited about moving forward with SeatGeek? Yeah, you know, um, ultimately, we feel like we've spent so much time kind of building um, the infrastructure of what is now becoming a pretty big groundswell change in the wider entertainment industry, where as things have you know moved fully mobile and are being distributed openly, we're able to, to do things that previously um, were not possible and get millions and millions and millions of incremental folks into venues. There's a huge problem still in pro sports uh, where, you know, up to, depending on how you ask, half of inventory out there ultimately goes unsold, goes unused. Um, and it's mostly just an access and awareness problem. If you can get the right inventory in front of the right folks um, and can deliver to them seamlessly, then that number goes down to something much, much less. Um, so it's fun for me is after, you know, many years of kind of working on the constituent parts of solving that problem, we're finally beginning to really see meaningful results. And just one follow-up to that. How are you um, making consumers aware of, of the platform? Uh, lots of different ways. It's sort of a, you know, attack it from many different angles um, kind of solution. But, you know, traditional marketing um, online, we're also, we, we, we have sponsorship arrangements with a lot of the teams we work with. Um, and, you know, also word of mouth is still just a huge growth driver for us. Because ultimately, I think it's the building the best product, then people are naturally going to tell, uh, tell their friends about it, tell their family about it. And uh, the cheapest kind of acquisition you can do is word of mouth. So uh, we lean into that hard. Absolutely. Jack, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and educate our audience about SeatGeek. Thank for you. sure. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That was Jack Gretziner, CEO of SeatGeek. This has been the Wharton Sports Business Show. We'd like to thank all of our guests, including Lindsey Jones of USA Today, talking about the NFL national anthem policy and new rules in place, Adam Stern of the Wharton Sports Business Journal, talking to us about NASCAR, and then Jack Gretzinger, CEO of SeatGeek. I haven't used it yet, but I think it is a great platform, and I'm going to go take a look around on that, download the mobile app. We'll be back next week on Sirius XM 132. This has been the Wharton Sports Business Show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.